0: It is so good to be with you, whether you are here in the room or you have allowed us to join you at home. Thanks for being a part of what God is doing in and through our church. Open your Bible to Isaiah chapter 6. Last week we began a new series entitled Jesus is King. That's a good reminder in 2020, right? To know that no matter who holds political office, no matter who the leaders are, Jesus is king. He rules, he reigns sovereign over all. Our hope is that one day uh, more and more people on the earth would acknowledge him as king. But we know from the promises of scripture that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so that is the hope that we hold on to in difficult days like 2020. 20. Um, I was thinking about the events of 2020. It's hard not to think about the events of 2020. Some of you may try really hard not to think about the events of 2020, but uh, they are real, and they hit us in the face every time we turn on the news, everything from the coronavirus to the government response to the coronavirus to um, school closings and unemployment and economic recessions. Um, challenges to religious liberty. On top of that, we've had racial tensions and we've had a contentious political election. Let me ask you this question. What do you think a hundred years from now historians will write about the year that was 2020? What will this year be known for? Uh, It could be a lot of those different headlines. Um, Here's something that I want you to wrap your mind around. Did you know that it is very possible that God has orchestrated the events of 2020 so that you and I and everyone that's experiencing 2020 would get a clearer vision of who God really is? Here's the reality for everyone in this room and watching at home The events of 2020 will either blind you to who God really is, or the events of 2020 will reveal to you who God really is. The title of the message today is this, 2020, the year that our kings died. And I'm taking that from Isaiah chapter 6. Let me read to you the first few verses of Isaiah chapter 6. Please follow along with me. Isaiah says this. In the year that King Uzziah Died. Now, let me just identify it. Let me place that in history for you. You should ask questions of the Bible. When you read something that says, in the year King Uzziah died, your first question should be, I wonder what year that was? And as best as scholars can tell, that would have been the year 740 B.C. 740 years before Christ came, Isaiah is telling us, something happened in that year that that year was known for. And it was this, the king died. The king's name was Uzziah. And as a result of Isaiah's king dying, Isaiah got a clearer picture of who God really was. He goes on to say, In the year King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord. He was, he was sitting on a throne. He was high and lifted up. And the train of his robe, do you see the majestic picture? You are now in the throne room with Isaiah. He sees a king on a throne. He's got a robe and it's filling the temple. Interestingly, This throne was in the temple. Kings and thrones were not supposed to be in the temple. But in the year King Uzziah died, Isaiah got a clearer picture of who God really was. The one who rightfully as king could put his throne in the temple. It goes on to say in verse 2, Two, above him stood seraphim, these special created beings. I mean, now your mind is just gazing into things that human eyes have never seen. Angelic beings called seraphim. It says they had six wings. Are you getting a picture of these created beings? With two of those wings, he covered his face. Because they weren't holy enough to look at the one who was on the throne. With two more of the wings, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. So we have these levitating, flying, special created beings flying above the throne on which King Jesus is seated and his robe is filling the temple. And each one, verse 3, of the seraphim called to one another and they sang this song. Holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled, full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook. There was an earthquake at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Are are these blowing circuits in your brain right now? You are seeing something in the pages of Scripture that Isaiah saw in the year King Uzziah died. Let me ask you a question. Has anything that you hold dear died in 2020? I mean, 2020 has been the year that hopes have died, dreams have died, freedoms have died... Um, relationships may have died. There, there are a lot of things that may have died for you. Do you remember the way that 2020 opened up? It, was, it wasn't a bad year. It was a good year. But then we got the news that Kobe Bryant had died. A sports figure. You might call him a king in the sports world. And then later on, we found out that Chadwick Boseman had died. 2020 was the year that the Black Panther died. And then 2020 was the year that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had died, a political king, or we might say queen. 2020 was the year that Eddie Van Halen died, a king in the music world. 2020 was the year that Alex Trebek died, king of information. And 2020 has been the year some kings have died. Maybe more personally for you, Maybe you've gotten sick. Maybe someone that you know has gotten sick. Maybe someone that you know and loved has died in the year 2020. Those are things that we wouldn't sign up for. None of us in this room would have welcomed the events that caused our dreams and hopes to die. But listen, do you understand that God loves us so much That he will allow kings to die in order for us to get a clearer picture of who he is. The experience Isaiah had in the year 740 BC is the experience that I need to have in the year 2020. 740 BC was the year that Isaiah's king died? Here's the question. Will 2020 be the year that our kings die in order that we can get a new view of God? That's the question. We need to ask this question of the text. Who in the world is this king, Isaiah? I'm praying that 2020 will be the year that I see the Lord in a new vision. I'm praying that for our church. I'm praying that for you. I'm praying that you won't allow the events of 2020 to keep you from seeing the Lord. I'm praying that the events of 2020 will actually create the environment where you see the Lord high and lifted up, exalted in a throne room, glorious, and it will cause you to respond, holy, holy, holy. If that's going to happen, we're going to have to identify our kings. Let's talk about this king Uzziah, who is this guy and where would we find any information about him? Those of you that have been reading along with us in the 100 days of Bible reading, you're going to get to the story of King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. Let me invite you right now, just put your put a thumb mark here. We're going to come back to Isaiah 6, but I want you to flip over to 2 Chronicles chapter 26. Don't be embarrassed if you have to use the table of contents. If you want to find 2 Chronicles, find the book of Psalms and go left a little bit and you'll find 2 Chronicles chapter 26. Let me give you a little historical context. Isaiah was a real prophet. The prophet's job was to keep keep the king straight. If the king was well behaved, the prophet and the king got along great. And the good news is, Uzziah was a good king. At this time, Israel was a kingdom that had split into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was crumbling and falling because of the superpower Assyria, this huge military force that was coming in, and Assyria, the northern kingdom, was about to fall. The southern kingdom at the time was being ruled by a king named Uzziah. Let's find out a little information about Uzziah beginning in Second Chronicles chapter 26. Let's pick up the reading in verse 3. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign. Now just think about that. A 16 year old becomes king of the country. Any 16-year-olds in the room, raise your hand if you're 16 years old. Be proud of the fact that you're 16. Any 16-year-olds in the room, all the 16-year-olds were in the first service. They were all in the front row, as a matter of fact. Now, the 16-year-olds, how many of you think it's a good idea to put 16-year-olds in charge of a kingdom? Anybody? How many of you know some 16-year-olds that think they are in charge of the kingdom? And uh, listen, do you remember how we read last week that one of the signs that a country is under judgment is that God gives them immature leaders? They're either 16, or maybe they act like they're 16, and they're immature in their responsibility. Well, notice, this was a time when the kingdom of Israel was um, forsaking the Lord. They'd come under some of the judgment of the Lord. God gave them a 16-year-old king. His name was Uzziah. Let's find out more about him. It says he was 16 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years. Apparently, there were no term limits in the southern kingdom. 52 years he reigned in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jekeliah of Jerusalem, verse 4. And here's what we learn about Uzziah. Uzziah did what was right. In the eyes of the Lord, all in favor of 16-year-olds doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. I see those parents out there. I see you praying that your 16-year-olds would turn out this way. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that, the, that his father Amaziah had done. And he set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God, as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. It's a wonderful picture of a wonderful start of a wonderful kingship. He goes on to tell us that God gave him great military and political power. Look at verse 6. He went out and made war against the Philistines and broke through the wall of all these different cities that's listed there. Then look at the beginning of verse 7. God helped him. All in favor of God helping the king all in favor of God helping presidents and overruling them at times if they're about to step off in a wrong direction. God helped the president. God helped the king. God helped the leader. And God helped him, verse 7, against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in that city I'm not going to try to name. Then God gives him great economic power and great fame among the nations. Look at verse 8. And the Amorites paid tribute to Uzziah. They paid their taxes to the king. And his fame spread even to the border of Egypt, and he became very strong. Then he makes advances in architecture and agriculture. Look at verse 9. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the center gate and at the valley gate and at the angle and fortified them. And he built towers in the wilderness and cut out many cisterns, for he had large herds. He was a cattleman, both in that city and in the plain. And he had farmers and vine dressers in the hills and in the fertile lands. And then notice this at the end of verse 10. He loved the soil. How many of you like dirt? You like dirt? I see you farmers out there. I see you people with green. Fun- you would have loved Uzziah as your king. He was a man of the soil. And then he gives, God gives him the ability to create a military superpower. Look at verse 11. Moreover, Uzziah had an army of soldiers. Fit for war in divisions according to the numbers of the muster made by that guy. It goes on in verse 12 and says that he had 2,600 mighty men of valor. Verse 13 said he had an army of 307,500 who could make war with mighty power. To help the king against the enemy. Verse 14 Uzziah prepared for all the army with shields and spears and helmets and coats of mail and bows and stones for slinging. What's he gonna sling them with? Verse 15 In Jerusalem, he made machines. Invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones, and his fame spread far, and he was marvelously helped till he was strong. Good king, bad king. Good, good king. Good. You, you think Isaiah's loving the king? Man, this is great. This weak little nation, which had turned its back on God, had now been given a king That had feared God, leaned into God, sought God, and as a result, God was prospering this nation. Everything was up and to the right. And Isaiah had a great relationship with him. He was a friend, he was a fan. What's the first verse of verse 16? First word of verse 16. Oh, you knew it was coming, didn't you? Oh, here we go. Verse 16, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. It goes on to say, he was unfaithful to the Lord, his God, and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Doesn't that sound like a good thing? Is going to the place of worship. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. He went beyond his jurisdiction. He trivialized the place of worship. He overestimated his importance. He overestimated his authority. He overestimated his invincibility. And he trivialized the place of worship. The place where he went was reserved for the priests. There was a balance of power in the nation of Israel. There were prophets, there were priests, and there were kings. And they were all to share authority and leadership, but they had boundaries about the territory and jurisdiction they were supposed to go. This king got so far. Full of himself, God had prospered him so much, he must have thought, I'm in charge of what goes on in the place of worship. And the story continues. It says in verse 17 Azariah the priest went after him. Can you see Azariah sprinting after him to like tackle him and drag him out of that place? It goes on and says, Eighty priests of the Lord who were men of valor went after him too. And they withstood Azariah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who were consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from God. Now at that point, Uzziah had a decision to make. Is he going to heed the warning of the priest? Is he going to turn back and get back in his rightful place? Or is he going to resist the priest of the Lord and claim jurisdiction over the territory of worship? You know what he does. He puts himself in the place of God. As a matter of fact, maybe he's thinking, you know what? Everybody else is praising me. This is the place of praise. Maybe this is the place where I am to be praised. Maybe he's having visions of moving his throne into the temple. Maybe he's having vision of his robe filling the holy of holies. I mean, people go there to worship, and he's worthy of worship. So why not make it easier for them? Notice what happens in verse 19. Then Uzziah was angry. He was angry because he was confronted over his sin. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry, the priest—when he became angry with the priest corona, I mean leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. So he, so he tests positive for leprosy. Notice, all over the pages of Scripture, wherever you find a haughty, arrogant, self-righteous, self-reliant leader, you find someone who is inviting the judgment of God. Verse 20 says, Azariah the priest, and all the priests, remember there's 80 of them there, looked at him, and behold... He was leprous in his forehead and they rushed him out quickly and he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him and King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death and being a leper lived in a separate house, quarantined, and he was excluded from the house of the Lord. He had to watch online at home. What is going on here? Isaiah, back in Isaiah chapter 6, wants us to know that it wasn't until he got a vision of King Uzziah dying that he got a new vision of King Jesus reigning in the temple, in his rightful place of worship. We need to understand that God is so committed to being known and seen and loved and worshipped by us that he will allow our kings to die in order for us to get a new vision of God. Throughout the pages of Scripture, we learn God's plan A for leaders, is always humility. If we do not sign up for plan A, we will automatically be signed up for plan B, which is humiliation. The choice is ours. Will we humble ourselves like Isaiah, or will we exalt ourselves and be humiliated like Uzziah. Isaiah saw the downfall of a king and it was a warning sign to him of having the right posture before the Lord. Isaiah says in the year King Uzziah died, 740 B.C., I saw the Lord. Now our question would be, well now wait a minute, he's a prophet. Didn't didn't he already know the Lord? And the answer would be, sure. He knew the Lord as a concept. He knew the Lord intellectually. He knew the Torah. He knew the things that had been revealed in Holy Scripture. But he did not yet know the Lord experientially. The difference between knowing God intellectually And knowing God experientially comes down to this. Your posture before the glory of God. Aren't you glad God wants to be seen? Aren't you glad God wants to be known? Another question we might ask is this. Like, is everybody supposed to have like a vision like this? Like this spooky, smoky, mysterious vision? No, I don't think so. We know that God is spirit. Spirit. And one day we will see him face to face, but no man has ever seen God and lived. And so in the sense that Isaiah saw him, very few people in Scripture had that kind of experience. And the reality is, you and I don't need to have that kind of experience Because Isaiah's experience was recorded for us, and we can open to a book and read about it. God speaks through his word now. And we read over in the book of uh, Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that long ago, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Isaiah was a prophet. But today, in these last days, he speaks to us through his Son. The glory of God was most fully made evident in Jesus And Jesus, by what he said and what he did, made the glory of God fully known. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 1.3 says that he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of God's nature. So we have the ability to see God, the glory of God, in the person of Jesus Christ. But as human beings, we, we kind of have this vague awareness of God. Maybe you went to church as a young person, and you were introduced to some Bible verses, and maybe you went through some religious ceremony, and maybe your vague awareness turned into maybe kind of a passive approval, and maybe even an intellectual construct, and and maybe you've always kind of perceived God as a, a conceptual added component to your life. He's kind of like an app you download on the phone, but if he's in the way and you don't have enough room, you delete it to make room for other apps. And then when you need him, you go back and get him again. That's the type of knowledge of God that most people have in the world. And unfortunately, so many have in the church. When you see God the way he really is, you have an encounter with his glory that transforms you forever. Every, forever, everyone to whom God has ever become a real to can identify with this story. It, it, it may not have been some smoky vision, it may not have been some dream, it's not like that, but you remember being in a service where God's word was preached and the Holy Spirit squeezed your heart and you had to respond to the glory that had been revealed to you. Maybe it was as a child and, and a mother or dad faithfully prayed with you and you had some curious questions and, and they opened up the Scriptures and God became real to you. Let me say this, if the last time that happened was when you were six years old, you need to have another encounter with God the way that Isaiah had in chapter 6. It's not a one-time experience. Yes, there's a moment in time where God becomes very real and personal. And as Micah said earlier, we receive Jesus as King once for all, finally forever, but then the process from that point on is what we call sanctification. It's continual encounters with His holiness and with His glory and with who He really is. These seraphim, these special created beings, were crying, "Holy, holy, holy!" You know, in scripture, in the Hebrew uh, language, the the language that the Old Testament was written in, they don't have exclamation points. You know that? If we were going to try to emphasize something as superlative or excellent, we would put an exclamation point. Well, they didn't have that tool back in the Hebrew language, and so do you know what they did? They repeated things. Holy, holy, holy is the equivalent of you putting three exclamation points at the end of the word holy. And interestingly, Nowhere in the Bible do we ever see a word repeated three times other than this word holy only in reference to King Jesus. Holy Father, Holy Son, Holy Spirit. And we encounter God for who He really is as a holy being. The word holy means to be set apart. It it describes God's otherness, His transcendence. He's not like you. He's not like your grandfather. Now hopefully your grandfather is like God... And in that sense, you might say there's some likeness. But the idea is he is holy, we are not. He is holy, we are human. He is set apart. It also describes his moral perfection. Everything he does, he's absolutely right every time. And it also describes his immense beauty. There's an attraction to it. And at the same time, there's a wonder and a mystery to it. But more than any other thing, the word holy conveys that God is is devoted. What's he devoted to? He is devoted to his own glory. It's what he cares about most. And he wants what you care about most to be what he cares about most. So my question is, is what you care about most the glory of God being on display in your life in 2020 when there are a thousand other things less glorious to distract you from the glory of God. The word glory, I've taught you this before, the word glory means weight, it means weighty. Until God carries more weight than COVID, politics, sports, money, relationships you will not see him the way that he really is until god is weightier than you you will not see him the way he really is that's when you know god becomes real to you when he is weightier than your own comfort your own pleasure your own agenda what's on your calendar all your relationships what do you care about most is it what god cares about most namely his glory that's when god becomes more than a concept those of you that are on our uh, church email list on friday got an email and part of what was in the gospel city gazette this week was a testimony from a man named Jay anthony some of you know jay jay passed away last week so 2020 will be the year that Jay anthony died jay's testimony i hope you watched it there a few years ago we were able to capture his testimony his um his mother her greatest desire is that jay would grow up to be a catholic priest and so he was on that trajectory very early on his life he went to prep school he went to university he went to notre dame he got degrees in theology got a master's degree in divinity as if somehow you can master God's Divinity, which is a bad name for a degree, but he got one of those and, and just had a head full of all this stuff, all this religious ceremony. And right before he was to take the next step to become a Catholic priest, he just had this nagging thought that something is missing. And it wasn't until a friend returned from Vietnam, looked him in the face and said, Jay, have you ever made Jesus Christ Lord of your life? He said when his friend asked him that question, It was as if a lightning bolt went through his head. He said, that was the moment that God became more than a concept. That was the moment I saw the Lord high and lifted up, exalted, holy, glorious, more than just an add-on to your life. Have you had that kind of moment? I trust you have. Here's how to know if you have had that moment. When you see the Lord as he really is, you know what the next thing is? You see your sin the way it really is. May 2020 not only be the year that I see the Lord, may it also be the year that I see my sin. Notice verse 5. Isaiah's response to God's glory, to his holiness, was this. I said, woe is me. Interestingly, in the previous chapter, in Isaiah chapter 5, six different times, Isaiah wrote about the woes placed upon the people of Israel. He looked at their sin as like, "Woe woe is you, woe is you, woe is you, woe is you. And he listed all their sin. And yet when he sees the Lord, he gets his eyes off of everybody around him. And he says, woe is me. That word woe means to be cursed, to be damned, to be under God's wrath and judgment. He said, oh, he had a self-esteem problem. No, he had a sin problem. He said, I am lost. Do you see the word lost there in verse 6? Other translations use the word undone. The word actually means to be pulled apart. I am disintegrated. I'm, we would say, I'm wrecked in the presence of the holiness of God. The word also conveys the meaning to be silenced. Interestingly, it was very loud in that throne room as those seraphim were crying out continually, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah says, I cannot join them. I am completely unworthy to even say the name holy he goes on and says the problem is i'm a man of unclean lips and i dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips what was isaiah's occupation he was a prophet right you know what the best thing about isaiah was he was a communicator he know he knew how to use words he, he knew how to deliver a message with his lips, and yet he says, in the presence of holiness, my best thing is considered unclean. He was wrecked. He was pulled apart. And then he says, my eyes have seen the king. Which king is he talking about now? Is he talking about Uzziah? No, he's talking about King Jesus. My eyes have seen the King. And for the first time, he understands who he is encountering. He says, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. You know, for us, it, we, we could probably give a pretty good commentary on sin that we see other people committing. We're really good at you know, magnifying the sin of others and like, man, these people over here. And we minimize our own sin. And we compare ourselves and our sin to everybody else's sin. Nobody's perfect, but I'm better than most. And when I compare myself to this person, I, I look pretty good. But when I compare myself to holy God, I don't look so good. The difference between my sin and another sinner is minuscule between the difference in my sin and the holiness of God, which is infinite. And that's what Isaiah saw in that moment. The way you know you've had an encounter with the real God is that you have an overwhelming sense of the sinfulness of sin and your need for grace. He not only saw a new view of God, he saw a new view of his sin. And then, He saw a new view of God's grace. This was the year that Isaiah saw the Lord, which became the year that he saw his sin. And then it became the year that Isaiah saw God's grace. And I'm praying that you're going to see God's grace too. Look at verse 6. Then what happened next? One of those seraphim, remember the six wings? One of them flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. All right, now just put yourself in Isaiah's spot right now. You've gotten a vision of a holy, glorious God. You've seen these special created beings that you've never seen before in your life. You recognize how sinful you are in the presence of holiness. Then one of these beings grabs a burning coal and starts moving toward you. What do you think is going to happen next? Incineration, right? And yet that's not what happened with the coal. Notice what happened. Verse 7, he touched my mouth. Everybody say, ouch. He touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips, Your guilt has incinerated you. Is that what your Bible says? No, what does it say? Your guilt is what? Your your guilt is taken away. And your sin has condemned you to hell. Is that what it says? No, what does it say? Your sin is atoned for. That word atonement is very important. In the temple, there was A place of fire. There was a place of burning. It was the place where animal sacrifices were made. Blood was shed and then offered before the Lord. That angel took one of those coals, the place of atonement, and he touched the very component part of Isaiah's life, his lips, where he had identified uncleanness. The same cleansing that purifies also burns. Repentance is painful. God doesn't just forgive sin. He doesn't just overlook sin. God doesn't pretend like you don't have any sin. God cleanses it through purifying fire. He wants us to feel the pain of sin in our lives. He wants us to understand how much damage sin causes and so sometimes it hurts when you have an encounter with god and he puts his finger on an area of your life like your words are unclean your thoughts are unclean your life is unclean your hands are unclean the your, your behavior is unclean it hurts but he doesn't touch you to incinerate you he touches you to cleanse you so that he can use you think about it in the in the millisecond that the coal hit his lips Isaiah was transformed from an unclean man to a man who was as holy as one of those special created beings. And he could stand in the presence of God, not because of what he had done, but because of what God had done in grace to initiate cleansing in his life. And that's the story for every believer that meets the Lord. We realize that our sin has actually touched Jesus in a way that burned him on a cross in pain and agony. He felt the pain of our sin so that he could remove the guilt and the uncleanness in our own lives and we can stand in the presence of all holy God and be welcomed in because of his grace this was the year Isaiah got a new view of God he got a new view of his sin he got a new view of God's grace and then finally this was the year that he got a new vision for his mission And I'm praying this will be the year that we get all those things and this would be the year that you would see your mission, your purpose, the reason you were created. Look at verse 8. How does Isaiah respond? The moment that he's cleansed, he says, I heard a voice saying from the Lord, who shall I send? Who will go for us? God is essentially saying, I got some work to be done. I'm building an army because the same vision that Isaiah saw is the same vision that every person on the planet needs. The same cleansing that Isaiah got is the same cleansing that every person on the planet needs to have. And I'm putting together an army to go on mission. Who am I going to send? And Isaiah responds, here am I. Send me. That is the only appropriate response. When you've been in the presence of holiness, you've been made a subject of His grace, you've had your guilt removed and your sin atoned for, the only appropriate response is, Lord, whatever, wherever, whenever, I am available. Three things happen when you have this kind of encounter with God. God gets your availability, God gets your dependability, and God gets your expectancy. Notice what happens here. It says in verse 9, he said to me, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, do not perceive. You see, the the outcome of this mission was not great in human terms. The people were not going to listen. Isaiah signs up and says, here I am I, send me. And by the way, again, that, that is the only appropriate response when you've had a new view of God. We, so often we get up in the morning and we say, hey God, here I go, bless me. Better response, hey God, here I am, send me. Not my agenda, your agenda. I, we've learned that if you have to coerce, uh, beg, bribe, motivate someone to serve God, it's probably because they're not waking up every morning with a new view of God, a new view of their mission, saying, here am I, send me. Are you available to the Lord to go wherever, do whatever? And most of you are thinking, I, I don't, I'm not ready to move around the world. He probably just wants you to go back home. But don't just go home, be sent home. Don't just go to work on Monday, be sent to work on Monday. Don't just go to algebra class. Be sent in there on mission saying, Lord, however you want to use me. Whoever's in need here, there's people here that need to see you. And they need to experience a cleansing that I've gotten. So, Lord, use me. And so, God will use you. His dependability is listed there in verse 9. He says, go, say to this people, keep on hearing. Do not understand. Keep on seeing. Do not perceive. Verse 10, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy And blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn to be healed. It's interesting. God sent Isaiah to deliver a message that would not be heard. God had given them so many opportunities for so many years. They've sealed their judgment. Their response to Isaiah's message is going to confirm they're going to go into exile there's going to be judgment come on the land Assyria is going to have in actually Babylon's going to invade the southern kingdom and they're going to go into exile and it seems like all right that's going to be the end of the Bible that's this is not going in a good direction but there's one little sliver of hope in verse 11 Isaiah says how long O Lord By the way, it's usually my prayer on Monday morning after I've preached and this prophetic ministry. is like, how long do we have to keep doing this, Lord? Um, By the way, message to preachers here, uh, the success is not in the response to the message. The success is just in the delivery of the message. So if you're not liking the direction this is going, it's like, I've just got to trust that that's what the Lord sent me to tell you. And, you know, I know how to delete email on Monday too. So verse 12... Says, and the Lord is how long? It's going to be a long time. Verse 11. How long? He said, until cities lie in waste. Don't you wish it was said till the cities experience revival and spiritual awakening? It's not what it says. Until the cities lie in waste without inhabitant, houses without people, the land is desolate. Verse 12. And the Lord removes people far away and forsaken places. This is really depressing. Um, verse 13. And though a tenth remain in it, it'll be burned. Oh, that burn's not a good thing for a nation. Like a terebinth or an oak. So he describes it like a forest whose stump remains when it's felled. Do you see the picture? Have you seen like the wildfires out in California? These huge forests that have just been burned and destroyed. And all that's left is just like a smoking stump. That's the picture that God's creating until it's all burned down to the stump. The picture is, Israel's the forest, God is the fire, but here's the hope. Jesus is in the stump. Notice what it says next. Do you see it? Just just a couple of words. The holy seed is its stump. What are seeds? Seeds are these little power-packed, nutrient-filled capsules of life. And there's a seed in that stump. This huge nation is going to be whittled down to just a remnant, people that would be faithful to the Lord. And that remnant's going to be so small, it's going to go down to one person, Jesus, who's going to be born in Bethlehem 740 years later. Jesus is going to become a branch out of that stump. He's going to go on to describe himself as a vine, and he's gonna describe his followers as other branches, and he's gonna say as long as the branch abides in the vine, then there's gonna be life shoot through the branch, and fruit's gonna come out on the other side to much glory. And here's the deal, we bemoan the fact that we have to endure 2020, but here's the reality. We're still here. 2,020 years after Jesus was born, there's a seed that's grown into fruit over there and right there and in your family and and there are churches across the world because the promise was fulfilled that the seed would be in the stump. Do you know him? Have you had the kind of encounter with God that Isaiah had, that God becomes more than a concept? Do you have more than an intellectual understanding of this holy God? This is the way I'd like us to end the service. Whether you're here in the room or whether you are uh, at home online, I wonder if we could just spend the last few minutes In the throne room, completely focused upon the God who is described as holy, holy, holy. If you're physically able, have a desire to do so, would you just just feel comfortable just getting on your knees? You can turn that chair you're in into an old-fashioned prayer altar, and just bow before the holiness of Jesus, it's the only appropriate response, one, of, humiliate, one of, hum, of humility, so that the Lord doesn't have to create circumstances to humiliate us. You can stand, you can sit, you can kneel, whatever you're comfortable with in this moment. But would you, in this moment, focus on what Isaiah saw in that vision? A God who is high and lifted up. Glorious, weighty. Just in this moment, I wonder if you would just address this holy God and say, You are holy, holy, holy. I want to see you in all of your glory. Open my eyes to your nature, your character. Would you thank him right now? That He loves you so much, He is willing to remove any obstacle so that you might see Him for who He really is? Maybe you would confess that you've had a hard heart toward Him because of a particular king that's died in your life, a relationship, a hope, a dream, a business, a freedom. Thank you, Lord, you love us so much. You're willing to allow some of my kings to die so I could see you for who you really are. Would you confess to him right now any area of uncleanness in your life? Maybe you could say along with Isaiah, I am a man, I'm a woman of unclean lips the words that have come out of my mouth, the criticism, the hatred, the bitterness, the slander. I'm a man of unclean lips. Maybe for you, it's an unclean thought life. Maybe it's unclean actions, behaviors, attitudes, relationships. Confess that to him. Ask Him to take away the guilt, ask Him to atone for the sin, to purify your life. After Isaiah got a new view of his sin and a new view of God's grace, he got a new view of his mission, his immediate response was to make himself available to the Lord and say, here I am, Lord. My life doesn't belong to me. I'm not my own king. I serve at your pleasure. I don't have much, but what I have, it's yours. Whatever, wherever, whenever, send me. To tell him that. No matter what the response, no matter what the cost. Father, we come in Jesus' name into this throne room that you've invited us into. We're so aware of our uncleanness, our unworthiness to come before you, except in the name of Jesus, who's atoned for our sin. Thank you for the cleansing that's available through the cross. Father, we want to know you, to see you. I pray that this this knowledge, this remembrance of who you are would be something that wouldn't just take place once a week at a church. It would happen continually throughout the week, not just at monumental moments through our lives, but you would continue to remind us of your holiness. You've called us to be holy as you are holy. We can't just live however we want. And God, we want to be a church and a people that's on mission with you. Not a people that uses you, but people that Are willing for you to use us to go wherever, to do whatever, whenever. Here we are. Send us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Would you.